0: This podcast is designed to show how we all sell by being human, and I'm really excited to highlight an event this summer that brings together salespeople who I believe are the very best at doing just that. This episode is brought to you by the Sales Success Summit, hosted by Scott Ingram, happening October 11th through 12th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. This is an event for sales professionals by the top sales professionals in B2B sales, I personally came to this event in 2019 as an attendee, and the amount of personal and professional growth I've obtained as a result of attending it is truly massive. I met my coach and mentor. I found job opportunities, met Scott, met people who helped me launch this podcast, networked into the current job that I love. I attended some phenomenal sessions, and I really met some lifelong friends. You may think the number one salespeople at their companies are arrogant or cocky, I actually found the exact opposite was true. This event is run by salespeople that aren't just the top 1% at their companies. They're some of the best human beings that I know. I'll be attending it in person. And if you want to meet me, come hang out. Come join me by signing up at top one. That's T-O-P, the number one dot fm, and tell them I sent you. All right, now to the show. All right, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Stories of Selling Human podcast. I'm your host, Alex Smith, and I started this podcast because I believe everyone in the world will someday be faced with a situation, could be business, could be personal, that requires you to create change. I think we all want to be heard, seen, and understood, but the people who get our attention and convince, persuade, or influence us aren't just salespeople. There are great humans throughout all walks of life that we're drawn to. I'm going to share their stories here so that we can tap into what makes us human, practice our human skills, and ultimately we'll all become better at selling by being human. All right, gang, I am super excited to bring this person on. I feel like she is uh, so much about what this podcast stands for. I met her on Clubhouse and she has a new book out that speaks so much to you know what this podcast is about. She's an author of uh, the new book, how good humans sell. She's been teaching B2B salespeople how to sell without the sleaze or the cheese. She owns her own corporate sales training business. She's a speaker entrepreneur. She specializes in high tech and high end professional services. She's also on Clubhouse at Catherine Brown. Please welcome none other than Catherine Brown to the podcast. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Thank you, Alex. You know that when I met you on Clubhouse, we just both keyed in on this human word, right? And my radar went up and I was like, this is a person I have to meet. And so I'm so glad we were connected through some mutual friends.
0: Absolutely. I'm so excited. Yeah. So, you know, I've listened to you for a while and on other podcasts. And one of the things, it's so funny, you use the term and sometimes you say to people, a lot of people that you train in sales, you ask a question kind of in the beginning, like, how did you get into sales? Or did you ever want to be in sales when you grew up? And right. people were like, no, or unless they're an entrepreneur or like they saw that at home or something like that. But you say the term like people fall into sales. I certainly did after school. I was in trying to be in PR and, and corporate communications. And it kind of like, it was just like a job that I could get and, and I took it. I'm curious about kind of that term, that term fascinates me, people falling into sales or maybe did sales fall into them. And, you know, what I mean by that is maybe we had these skills all along. I feel like we're all doing it. We're all selling. It's just that salespeople are the only ones that like to admit it. And so curious for you, you were in band, I think, you know, growing up, uh, you all, you wanted me a musician growing up. And then all of a sudden, like, you just didn't feel the love to, to practice and so you kind of said sales was something, you know, like recruiting was something fun. And I wanted to ask you, what did you think was fun about selling in the, you know, in the early days of you taking that first career? Cause I'm trying to get at what maybe things we've had, you know, people have innately that uh, lead them to want to pursue an actual career out of sales.
1: Yes. I love that question, Alex, because and I'll answer that and kind of make a little bit of a tangent with your permission. I think that that overlaps a lot with the question that comes up a lot about sales, which is what is innate about your basic disposition or genetics or makeup, you know, and a lot of people will raise this question to me about introversion, extroversion. Mm -hmm. The music path, I realized by the time I got to about age 20, that It was actually going to the festivals and being one of (laughs) many in the orchestra and the travel around that. That was my favorite part. And what I realized was that I was lonely practicing as many hours in Hmm. practice room as it would take. And I was starting to kind of bribe myself, like I would say to myself, "Okay, you're going to when you get these excerpts right, then you'll go meet your friends at the coffee house Or you do this. I had these little games and incentives with myself and I would hear that other people would just get lost in the music and hours would rush by. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never feel that way. And I think it's probably for me somewhat about introversion and extroversion because I do get energy from people, but It's funny that I would then go to a technical recruiting position and say that was fun. I get that that's ironic (laughs) because some people wouldn't think that was fun and that it wasn't a big change or big step over. But for me, what recruiting provided and what then going from that kind of selling to other kinds of selling provided for me was I mastered a framework. Of this is how I generally run the interviews. This is Mm. how I run the Mm. call. I could memorize that. I could learn the terminology about the tech stuff. You just have to Mm -hmm. learn it, right? But the people all changed their needs, their goals. Every person was different. And so meeting copious numbers of people over the years and seeing similarities in people, differences in people, and just having a wide network, that part of connecting was true from the very first job out of college. And mm-hmm. it's been true for everything I've done since then. And even my volunteering, my volunteering will often be, hey, I'm going to this banquet. Don't you want to come too? Or I'm going to buy a table for this. Who can I invite? Who would think this cause was special? And I'm assembling people. And so it's that connecting part. That's the human to human connecting part that I think 22 years old, run right <laughs> out of college, I didn't have the words for it that you and I have now, but I think that's what was happening is that even though we were talking tech stuff and they were programmers, they're people and we were connecting on that people to people level in a way that you don't do in the practice room. The practice room is a solitary, beautiful, but solitary experience. And I didn't want as much of that.
0: I love that answer because a lot of people think that people all want to be in sales because it's uncapped potential like my performance dictates my worth you know i get to make as much money as i want people are or watching people driving great cars and i wanted that lifestyle it's all inward focus as opposed to what you were talking about it's like i get energy from other people and like the possibilities that every person might give to me right so like they're not looking at as as focused like i'm trying to win over this one moment. It's like you have this like infinite mindset where it could be, it's more about like the connection, like you said, and, you know, one person could lead to another to lead to another that may through that, that's what got you energy. And through doing those things, you've probably got sales that you weren't really intending maybe to necessarily make, but they generated themselves organically because of those activities, it seems.
1: Yes, and then people follow you company to company. They want to know what else you're working on and you can have relationship-free service after 10 years or things like that. So I think the other thing that I've seen happen that is less true when you're first starting in sales, but it's something a person can aspire to and practice, practice, practice to get to, is that the more you think of selling as helping other people make the connections they need, sometimes the solution is what I offer. But as many times... Like if if I have an inbound lead or I get a referral from someone, I would say half the time it's a great lead for me. And half the time it actually ends up being a referral outward. And I have the tools to figure that out really quick and qualify in and qualify out. But if I qualify out, I always send them on their way for these awesome connections because it's part of what has now become a pretty vast network. And I didn't have that when I was 23, but I do have that now. and so. Any kind of marketing thing a person could want, any kind of coaching thing a person could want, any kind of chief revenue officer or sales enablement thing a person could want, I probably know somebody who can help them. So if I'm not, you know, the right next thing, someone else is. And that connector part goes all the way back to that very first job in recruiting, in being a tool and a resource for other people. That's very gratifying as part of the profession to me.
0: Yeah. Before we get into kind of what you do, because I want to definitely dive into like how you coach people and how like your brand of selling and some tactics, principles and tactics. Before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the person you are. And maybe before you even got into that, you know, one of the things you wrote in your book is I was just nodding my head the whole time. And at the very beginning, you said, sales is a way one human can demonstrate to another that they care. And I was like, man, that's so profound, <laughs> so simple, but profound. And I'm wondering, like, in your personal life, like, if you really looked back, maybe you really didn't think of it back then, like before. I think music, in a lot of ways, is, is connecting with your audience and showing people that you care about kind of like the emotions in the room and mm-hmm. and like how they're reacting. And maybe even before that in your personal life, Were there things that you maybe now looking back, like things that you did that were demonstrating to people that that you were caring, but you didn't really view them as sales back Mm -hmm. then, but maybe in a way through that lens, through the lens of caring, people were drawn to you because of that approach?
1: Yes, I think. So this theme of care, it's making me think of a few other words to see if this line of thinking makes sense. I think that one of the things that music provides is it it trains you to recognize beauty. It trains you to have an ear for it and to connect in community with other people around it. And um, <laughs> in fact, when I was dating my husband, my husband and I met in college and, and married right out of college, literally the week after I graduated, which no one should ever do because that was crazy. <laughs> it was so stressful. It seemed like a good idea at the time. We were engaged to be married and having a conversation one night. And I said, okay, I know this is crazy. We don't even know if we'll have kids or if we'll have trouble getting pregnant and what this would look like, but my future children must have music lessons. <laughs> yeah. And and he said, okay, because he kind of did the obligatory four years of piano. He said, you know, why is that? And I said, I think it's, it's a privilege. It's certainly a position of privilege. And I know that not everyone can do it, but it cultivates you It gives you a framework and literally scales and theory and all of these ways of connecting with other people around beauty. And it doesn't have to be classical music. I mean, mine happened to be. But think about how all of this is. What is sales? You have a framework. And once you memorize the framework, you can riff off the framework. And you play with others. When you learn to sell people who are amazing at selling, I guarantee you, as and you've interviewed them, you know. As you drill in, they've got three, four, five steps. They always do, and they it may sound different each time, but in the back of their mind, it's like the frame of a house. Like there's a frame there, and how I decorate the room and what it looks like is different each time, but I always stick with the frame because that's how I have success. Is they go through a process. I think that I think lots of things are like that.
0: Yeah, like. Structure of, of music, like you have the basics. Now you talked about like how we learn things, like you have a baseline of learning how your kids like in, in school learn. They have like a baseline of their arithmetic and then you build off of that. A lot of people like view sales as so daunting. It's like they use these limiting words like, you know, I need to go get coaching or I just got to do this or maybe just if I do this and I should have done this, I need to, I'm a business owner. I, I, I feel like I should go get some sales coaching. But like they don't recognize the things that maybe they're already doing in that framework and like just focusing on that, keeping it simple of, of that. And then just focusing on like at the end of the day, what is the intention, the outcome? Like you said, I think you've I've heard you say this isn't rocket science. People complicate it more than it has to be. Mm-hmm. If you're only thinking about that other person, how do I make this person's life better? How am I really caring about this individual, the product, like the knowledge? as you say in the book, also is less important than someone believing that they're putting their interests, you're putting their interests even over your own.
1: The technical mastery of what you say, that mastery is not as important. The perfect answers are not as important for the seller as that the prospect feel. Absolutely. And I think that when I'm saying it's not rocket science too, what I mean is that Think of all the sales training systems that are out there. There's so many wonderful brands. They all come down to a series of steps. So basically, people have different words for a series of steps. But once you have those, we'll we'll mix our metaphors and we'll say, once you have those puzzle pieces and you have them generally in place, you have freedom to, ro- to move around those. And that's why I like people... I want to break it down and make it easy for them to understand. They probably do have pieces of it already, and they may just have one missing piece. It may not be that complicated to get them on track.
0: So let's talk a little bit about how you coach. And some people may think it's like a new approach to sales. I I don't. I think it's always been humans have always been involved in sales, even from the earliest days of cavemen to cavemen and women, you know, selling human beings like our brains our hearts it's it's all been a part of it in the beginning but somewhere along the way it became about just exchanging money for value and and that's still a part of it but you can't ignore that humanity that emotion around it our mindsets that sort of thing so talk a little bit about it like you launched this book tell me why you think that something was so necessary to put onto the world with like such a great title, by the way, thank um, you. how good humans sell, why was it necessary and why was it so important uh, for you to write it? And maybe a third follow-up who in your life inspired you to write it? What human beings did you witness were doing these things that, that you write about in the book?
1: All right. Thank you. So I think that over the years, I'll give you a couple buckets of thought. These are gross generalizations, but they're helpful to make an illustration, I think. There are people who think of sales categorically as a system of steps to convince. And then there are people who think of sales as a step of discovery that results in asking them to buy. And you see the difference there, right? So I'm not saying everyone who teaches on this is all one way or the other because there's this middle ground in the middle. But in general, I think there's a lot out there about convincing and it gets into how you negotiate and who goes first and who does these things. And I'm sure there's things I can learn in those categories. I I don't purport to know all of that. But I am not in the convince camp. I, I don't like that because I don't like when I'm on the receiving end of that and my hackles go up and I'm very nice to salespeople, Alex, because I mean, I write back to everyone who solicits me because I did as a cold caller for so many years that I feel sorry for people. And I will always write back, even if it's just to say, this isn't a priority. I can't foresee this becoming a priority. So, you know, you can take me off your list if you want or check back in a year. I mean, you know, I, I literally coach people who solicit me because I understand that that's a tough job but I'm not in the convinced camp. I'm in another camp. And I felt like to your question, why now, or what is unique about it? I feel like there's so much that we actually know from social science research. And before you and I started recording, we were talking about Carol Dweck and Malcolm Gladwell. And there's all kinds of people in the behavioral economic space that have done this amazing research or like Malcolm Gladwell, he compiles other people's amazing research and puts it in a readable format. There's all these things we know about why we do what we do as humans. And I don't didn't feel like very much of that was addressed in selling. So it's not that I, I do have a little bit of original research in the book where I did some of my own data about people's attitudes about sales. I wanted there to be some of my own research, but It really didn't set out saying, I'm going to be a lifelong researcher about this like Brene Brown is about her topic. That wasn't really my goal. I wanted to test my theory, but it also aggregate great classic social science research that says, what is going on here and here when you're selling that we already know because you are a human being. You show up like this in your personal life, and this research shows this in other ways, How does the research inform how we are behaving while we're selling and what can I bring to that? So bringing in those elements about how and why people do what they do, I didn't see much of that. So I'm very interested in being corrected on that and learning if there's more, but I haven't seen much about that being applied to selling. And that feels like such a missed opportunity to me because If there's all this research, for example, on, we know that term cognitive dissonance, cognitive dissonance has been used in all these other ways, but not about sales, right? Confirmation bias. I will see whatever I think I'm going to see. In fact, I go look for it subconsciously. That's what what confirmation bias says. Well, we know it's been applied in all these other ways. Why not to sell?
0: Yeah. Sales is psychology. It's trying to get in someone's you know, head and in their heart a bit and asking the right questions to try to help people and lock it in themselves. A lot of people don't even realize what they're doing, like what they really want. A lot of times that's what they tell you they need or want isn't really the real root. I feel like the best salespeople are are always looking for the real root behind the need and what's really driving this uh this sale here. And they're, they're just constantly hunting for it they don't take anything at face value. Let's talk maybe about tactics. Cause you write a little bit about like people are making decisions. You, I think the term you got from a colleague was MVP motives, values, power list. I love that. I right. um, yeah. you know, made up that term or yeah. you made it or you coined yeah. the term. I am so, so sorry. So it's okay. it's you okay. coined the term. So it's based on human needs, status, security, comfort. Like you're always trying to, and I, and I've been in sales trainings too you would like this. I've been in a sales training once. Uh, it was, uh, I'll, I'll throw, uh, throw him a shout out to uh, Corporate Visions. And uh, this trainer said, like, anytime you use the word, like, we want to help you or our goal, or I'm going to, or I, I, we, we, we will, you know, you have to wear this cape. And our goal is not to be the hero of the story and to like be the superhero for the client to save them. It's to be the guide and make your client the hero of the story and to ask questions really you're the, Mm -hmm. the, the Yoda, you're the, like every good movie is based on this like hero story. So
1: Dumbledore.
0: Yeah. Dumbledore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Like, (laughs) yeah, I love how you, you, you (laughs) talk about that in the book. So tell me like some of the tactics you coach salespeople on and really helping people be that guide and unlock these, like, you know, like sometimes these hard human needs that Mm -hmm. people aren't necessarily willing to just offer up when they first meet you.
1: That's right. That's right. No. So on the MVP list, quick summary about that is saying that I'm saying there, it's like a Venn diagram. So think of three circles that overlap. And I'm saying most of a, a very significant percent of the their buying decision is, let's just say 50-50. It's okay. different for each person. Let's say 50-50. Say 50% of their decision is actually about the product or service you sell. It's making sure it checks the box. Yep. Does this thing work? Does it accomplish the functionality I need? Are they who they say they are, et cetera? The other part, let's say 50%, I don't really know, it's a guess, but let's say the other 50% is the MVP list. And that's things like the status, the security, and the comfort that this buying decision gives me. This is what I think people mean when they say people buy emotionally and they justify rationally. I don't like that expression because I think that to the person who's the buyer, it could be perceived as manipulative. And I don't think it's meant that way. But I agree with the sentiment about the fact that emotions drive so much more than people realize themselves as the buyer. Like if I'm the buyer, I I am not always in tune with the fact that I am thinking subconsciously sometimes I'm thinking, is this going to help me be promoted or is this going to be a threat to me? Is this going to make me look good or is this not? Is this literally going to feel good? Might be a luxury good, right? How is this going to feel? How will I appear? All of those things are MVP. Motives and values, powerless kind of items. So because we don't always know really what we want, the way I teach people to be a guide in that sales process and what your listeners can take from this call is Number one, we never act in a condescending way because that wouldn't be a good human thing to do. But we are suspicious about whether the person who is declaring what they want actually really wants the thing they want. (laughs) And I'm just saying that because I don't think humans in general always have an accurate sense. Literally, Alex, just this week, I went back to a person I have bought lots of things from in the past for my company. And I said, would you give me a quote for this thing? And then I got the thing. They gave me exactly what I asked for and I got it. And when I opened it and really stared at it and thought about my next steps, I thought, this isn't the thing I need at all. They didn't do anything wrong as a seller. It just would have been even better if they said, hey, I'll give this to you if you're ready. But what would be really awesome would be for me to understand your goal for this thing so I can make sure it's actually going to give you what you want. So now because they fulfilled what I asked, I'm going to pay them, but I still have to go have a conversation talk about my goals because really we should have talked about my goals to begin with. And I'm not blaming or being ugly about that. I just think I teach on this and I didn't slow down long enough to think self, what is it that you really want and walk myself through a process. So I wasn't a great communicator. They didn't ask good questions. I didn't end up with what I need. And now I'm back to the drawing board and I have to look again.
0: Yeah, it's so much better when you're focusing on just, just making anything easy for people, whether it leads to you or not. It's just, like you said, with what you did, you're getting at like, tell me like, what you're gonna use that for. Or, like, How is that gonna help you? How
1: will help you? To you what know, end? Right?
0: Yeah, to so, what end? What will what life end? be? Yeah, I like that. I, I'm gonna and steal to that from end? you Because
1: everyone is on, I like that part about the hero's journey metaphor, the idea that there is an ultimate transformation that our hero is trying to experience. If the hero is the prospect, they're marching along in their life and you have an opportunity to come in and say, for this season, for this opportunity, for this thing, maybe I can help you. And you ask questions around that, you decide if that's true and you send them on their way. I mean, it's, you are a meaningful relationship for a season as long as that makes sense and when it makes sense. And that's the way that it's about them and not about you. So one of the takeaways that your listeners could take is that number one, we've already said, people don't always know what they want. So don't assume ask a lot of questions around whether that's true. And you know, Alex, I always start with some version of a goal question on a discovery call. It might be, would you tell me what you've tried up until now or it might be i hear you got my name from so and so can you tell me a little bit about your project but it's a broad question because i'm listening for mvp things because so when you once you train yourself to hear you'll hear status security comfort you'll hear hints about it that tell you what is important to that person but we can't assume that a person's completely dialed in that the buyer is completely dialed in on what they want because that would have they have all the information they could possibly have to make the decision.
0: And who has that? Yeah, <laughs> I, and I, I would. <laughs> I don't either. And I love how you like some of those. Like for everybody listening, some of those things that she calls out, and you're you know you're going to have a link to this in the book. But you know, she calls out like things that you can listen for when people are like asking. Like she used like a construction manager story and like a, with a drill bit. And when they ask about like you know how do you monitor these bits? You know, like they're thinking of. Like, Ooh, like what if these bits break, then we're talking about, like, we're not talking about the product. We're talking about like all the implications, like the costs, the hassle, they, all that, like, how do you prevent that from happening? So then, then they're right locked in. So you're just kind of keeping your eye when you're asking, like recognizing, okay, this person's going to a motive here. Like they're going to like something that's important, like their status, like being safe, you know, people want to move towards feeling of comfort or feeling of like mitigating risk, all of that thing. So like, listen for those things, right?
1: Right. And what I'm saying is we're all driven by those things all the time anyway, just as humans and focusing on how I understand what's important to those people. Cause some people are more preventionally into If you're selling to my husband he could have been a bridge engineer. He ended up as a statistician instead, but he is very prevention oriented. So he wants to know, is this going to prevent harm? That's literally how he will think. Like, is this warranted? How can I check your credentials, right? Like he's wired that way. Other people, not wired as much toward that way. But see all this work that we're giving to thinking about what's important to the prospect. Hmm. That is- not presenting about yourself the whole time. That's one of the things it means to be a guide is to not present about yourself the whole time. And number two, you're not convincing. You're asking, and then you're saying, now I heard you say this, Hmm. and you say it back, Hmm. and then you are thinking through, is what I sell at this moment a fit? Part of what else I think is a little bit unique about this guide idea and the way I like to teach selling compared to some of the training that I went through as a a sales employee Mm -hmm. years ago, Mm -hmm. is that I also think that when you focus on questions like this, the issue of timing and urgency comes up and you don't have to be afraid if the answer is, this is awesome, but not right now.
0: Totally. Yeah.
1: And I think what happens is, this is a much larger conversation we can have over dinner sometime. But I think that because people are so commission focused, and driven, and I think it's wonderful that salespeople can make a lot of money, and I want to make a lot of money. Like That's not bad. I'm not saying that. But I think that when we're so numbers-driven like this, and we don't have all the right incentives to do the right thing, sometimes the right thing is to kick them back to marketing because they are actually the right buyer title. It's just not the right time. And so we have to have a way to continue to serve them through marketing where we continue to add value we create curiosity we build trust we build a relationship and we come back around at the right time and not be afraid i don't want to be afraid of it not being yet because if i do the right thing and i'm talking to enough people i will have a full pipeline i think
0: yeah i agree you talked about so much there i don't want to let you you know get away without talking about like mindset and you know you kind of hinted on that there like what you're thinking about, like a long-term relationship, you're always thinking about just like, how are you serving? What is a no now isn't a no forever. And like ghosting now doesn't mean they hate you. We're always telling ourselves these things in you. You write so well about how that affects selling our mindset. You said even something like you, we all want our lives to have meaning and meaning. I love that meaning produces well-being. So I wanted to maybe have you tell me what you meant by that. And then also just like how we have this sometimes versus like we talked to, you talked about Carol Dweck and she writes a lot about in psychology, a fixed and growth mindset, you know, maybe about like, for me, I took a lot away from you catching ourselves because we're all in these mindsets sometimes Mm -hmm. where we just limit ourselves so much. So maybe those two things talk a little bit about like, how we should identify when we're in these these states and then also maybe what you meant by that where like well-being
1: so years ago i probably would have laughed about this term because i had this whole category of thought over here that felt very anti-intellectual to me and it felt like if i love social science and i can rattle off all the social scientists names that probably says something about my interests right and so there's this other whole Line of self improvement and writing and speakers and teachers that would talk about mindset, especially about terms like having abundance mindset or having a scarcity mindset, and anything about a with the term abundance mindset would set off this flashing yellow light, and I would think hokey 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 or silly silly silly. Or I was not very open at the time. I had a fixed mindset about about what I could learn from those speakers and teachers, and. One of the things that I have grown in over the years that I now look for opportunities to impart to other people is when we're selling, if we have a long view in that relationship and we think about being the right thing at the right season for someone, and if we're not being a vehicle, being a tool, being a resource to send them on their way to what is the right next thing, they will come back, it'll come back around, you can have this crazy reciprocity, number of just abundant relationships of people who help each other when we always do what's the right thing for someone. And so every time I catch myself in a mindset that's unhelpful about selling, it comes back, Alex, to scarcity. It comes back to not enough leads, worried about not enough revenue, worried about not enough activities in a day or not enough hours in a day. And I hate when I do that. And I, and I can sense it a hundred miles away in someone else. It's just scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. Whereas having a long-term view, always doing the right thing, being a good human, being a good person and thinking about what is added value in this person's life at this moment. I can't tell you how many times I've done coaching calls with people where they're talking about, I'll give you a great example. This isn't in the book. So I have a client that sells to officers in banks. And this client told me about how a C-level executive in the bank that they wanted to sell to shared at lunch, shared some personal stuff going on in her life. She didn't have to. She just, I think she was just cracking the door up a little bit and they were small talking and she's saying, I'm, you know what, kind of having a hard time here. things going on. Well, I hear that and I think, oh my gosh, what a privileged position, this person who's not bought from you yet has told you some things they did not have to tell you and this is to be treated with so much care and also as importantly from the perspective of my client who's the seller i wanted him to recognize that and recognize i haven't sold anything yet but they wouldn't have told me those things if they didn't like me and trust me so i'm making major progress here on this relationship right even at, again long view think about the next right thing. So we were getting to year end and I was talking to my client about some accounts that he was trying to crack open and he referenced this one and he told me a little bit about that conversation. Again, nothing too confidential or anything, but gave me a peek in our one-on-one about how this prospect had shared some things with him. And the things that she shared could have and really with more practice for my client ought to prompt a series of actions where you start thinking, what is additional value to this person in their life at this moment based on what they've shared with me? Well, it's not for me to ask them yet to buy. <laughs> like you now have privileged information about something that's going on with this person personally, and you know that that would actually be inappropriate to press them in light of what they've shared with you. Do you see what I'm saying, I don't care that it was your end. This is an industry where they would be a relationship. They could buy from him for years, years and years. I'm not exaggerating because it's a recurring thing. And so what is one quarter compared to doing ultimately what is the more thoughtful thing to do, right? So my coaching was, I really think you want to reference that you that you recognize she shared privilege information with you. And personal information and say how much you appreciate the time you had together and you need to send something for the holidays and you need to call back later. I mean, I was like, don't ask. And that sounds so crazy for a sales trainer, but the MVP side of all of that, there's all this personal stuff that informed how to have a long view. And if you have an abundance mentality and you don't have a scarcity mentality and you, you have that right perspective, is that making sense? Totally directs different steps totally makes you a different kind of human who's selling, I think.
0: I'll end off on this. And then I'm going to ask you one last question. So you're making me think like, I've I've shared a version of this story for people listening, but I just recently, I can even celebrate this because this month, this sale closed. And I have a client who started out months and probably in February where client came in and like a first HR person, first level vetting a bunch of uh, companies. I sell learning management software and Learning strategy software, so she vet, vetting a bunch of tools. And long story short, we had a couple of demos, and things just stalled. You know, we'd sent her some kind of information back, and things just stalled. And but she asked such great questions, and again, we made it all about her. We didn't bring slides and present at her, and she had noted that like we didn't really focus on us or talking about us. That we were all asking her questions all the time about her. And then somewhere across the like, lane, we had a personal conversation about. My father, who uh, last year had um, just had some hard things that happened to my daddy, he had leukemia, and just a l- really tough. Because she had mentioned something about being out because of her mom and hospice, and I asked, "Oh, who? I know you were out. Who was it? I know." And then she just, you know, felt comfortable talking to me, and we had this conversation about our parents. Deal went dark, and I just threw something out there, like, "Hey, it seems like this isn't the right time." You ask such great questions. I want to know who I can give you a recommendation to who's your boss? Who can I give a letter to, to give you a nice shout out? Cause you know, whether or not it's time to buy, I just want to let you know, you may think that it's not necessary, but I think it is. And she, Oh my gosh, you don't have to do that. She didn't even tell me who it was. She just said, Oh my gosh, it's not the right time. Now. I just love talking talk to you. You're good people, Alex Smith. She, it's a marble. I need to take that email and save it. And so I didn't hear from her for like a week. And then out of the blue on the weekend, hey, Alex, this is so-and-so. You've been working with XYZ. I'd like to have a call. And and that was the start. And that was her boss. And that turned into introduce me to a whole suite of people. And months later, it closed. So that separates yourself. People like want to buy from people, again, that are real.
1: Now, this is interesting because I have a friend who is a fellow trainer. I won't name him. But I have a friend who's a fellow trainer and we have an active dispute about this because he says people will have to like you, but they do have to trust you. I think they have to like you. You don't have to be best friends, but I think those go together. And it's one of those expressions, like people say, always be closing or some of, or people buy emotionally, they justify rationally. We have these expressions that we say, but I don't repeat all of those expressions. I think we want to pause, notice and say, do I really think that? And I think they have to like you.
0: Yeah. And I think like people get it confused because your product has to help them and there has to be some, that it's not like one or the other, you do things simultaneously, right? Like you're always thinking about the person and through caring about the person, through your like knowledge on your product, through communicating the value, through focusing on them and like picking up those little like, leaves that they put out there, those little strings that they pull out there and they feel listened to, they feel again, in the beginning, gang, seen, heard, and understood that creates, you know, people that like working with you. And, you know, yes, people might buy something from somebody because it's like an awesome product, right? Like, but the salesperson's terrible. They won't do it with a smile on their face. They'll feel like it was just like a necessary evil and in my opinion, you want to be like liked and you wanted to be somebody that's like valued and trusted and all those go together. But like it's so much more powerful because I think likability can overcome maybe like some product deficiencies, you know, like yes, if, if it's think- something that they really believe like you're gonna help them overcome those because you care about them more than you do yourself.
1: Well, this is interesting. I haven't ever drawn an equation about this, but I'm listening to you, us, and I'm thinking it'd be interesting. We could we could figure out what the graphic look like of saying, I could have a mediocre product and be liked, and that results in a sale, and I could have a really amazing product and not be liked, and that would result in a sale. But what ultimately gets more sales and more good referrals? Yeah, I
0: have I have a quadrant. I'm going to share it. I have a like a quick five minute talk on this, that's going to go beyond this conversation. Awesome. And I'm going to share it with the listeners. But yeah, like it's like the top right is liked and trusted and is everything and like necessary evil. People might buy, but you're not going to get the like long term referral. And then you have like not liked, terrible product, and of course not. And then like. Yeah. Another quadrant that's like, that's kind of like a maybe, and you don't, you're not sure if you're going to buy or not.
1: I agree. I wouldn't want people to think in our good humans discussion that we're saying there's not a product detailed discussion about that. And it might sound like what I'm discussing just takes forever. It doesn't. I mean, I typically have a 20 minute discovery call, I quote basic price so that we have a sense of whether they can afford it or not. I don't ask what's your budget. That's a whole other conversation, but I don't want the budget because I think people pay for things and they find money for things they think are important. So I don't ask the budget. I say things like this start at X. That's how I handle it. So they just they know whether they want to keep talking. And my goal in the discovery call is understanding urgency of timing. Because I want to know if it's a marketing lead or a sales lead. If I've quoted the basic price, I have a little bit of understanding of what they want to do. And we've talked about whether it's sales or marketing lead. Then we schedule the next call, and that next one is probably an hour. And I might close at the end of that, or there may be one more, and I might close at the end of that. Like I'm not talking about ten hours of conversations. Bigger, bigger deals, sure, more steps. But what you and I are talking about here about creating some relationship, taking an interest, listening for the MVP stuff—it's happening all in the midst of that twenty-minute call and then one-hour call. This is not a 10-hour experience. Yeah, you might become friends and you might have some emailing and follow each other on social and have some other interactions in a real relationship. But in terms of the sales cycle, it takes like this much longer to have it be that much deeper.
0: Yeah. And I'll just say when you're doing those things, like people are more engaged. They're more apt to tell you things that they weren't. They're more apt to ask you questions that go to those motives and you know, those, those reasons why they want to buy. They're more in the conversation when you're doing those things. So Catherine, I can talk to you for so long. I know you, you've got to run before you do. I always ask my guests a really fun question about the human that they are fun story about you, because I feel like these stories connect us and like, it's just us, like no one in the world is like us. So it is a fun question. And, and it is this, and if I asked your husband, your kids, what is something that is just only one human in the world? Uh, can do. So what is something or some event, something that happened to Catherine that would only and could only happen to Catherine Brown? What would that one thing be that is just so totally Catherine? (laughs)
1: I'm (laughs) laughing because I don't do it in professional situations, but I have the most ridiculous cackle you've ever heard. It is so loud, (laughs) so contagious and ridiculous. So it only comes out at the funniest movies or a fit of giggles. Like it doesn't happen very often. In fact, I have a college friend that I've known for 20 plus years, and we were on a women's retreat together, and we were we were all hanging out in the hot tub and we started laughing about something, and I got into a full-range cackle. And my friend of 20 years was pointing at me and she said, I have never heard that in my life. And I have lots of small laughs like that, but I'm talking. I don't even want you to hear it. I mean, it's so ridiculous, and my my people love it because it is like the height of happiness, and it's safe for special occasions.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, someday we're gonna have to hear it at some point. I don't have a good uh, uh, Texas sized joke for you, but until then, for all of our listeners that might not be able to hear it now, but where can they find you and maybe hear it at some point on a Zoom call or like in a LinkedIn video, maybe? Where can yes, they find you?
1: I will I will think about where they could hear the cackle for sure. But for everything you'd like to learn about how to get on my regular email communication or courses or things about the book, everything is at my company website, which is extra bold e-xtra sales.com. Extra bold sales.com.
0: Awesome. All right. Go there, get the book. You're going to have it in the show notes. And um, maybe I know you're learn learn something. I don't know if you'll hear any cackles, but uh, <laughs> speaking from someone who's read it, you're learn a ton. Catherine Brown, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Alex. Talk to you again. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, gang. All right. Wow. You made it to the end. I know your time is valuable, so thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending your time here with me. If you heard a quote you liked, got a quick bit of value, or you have an idea that can help convince others to join, I urge you to take a minute and leave a five-star rating and review. That helps us gain influence and bring some really great guests on to add even more value to you and others. You can also always contact me directly to tell me your thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. All my info is in the notes, Let's help convince anyone that they have the ability to sell well just by being great humans. And this podcast is proof. All right. See you on the next episode of Stories of Selling Human.